Hello, I'm John Horning, and this is Shaking Scripture's Leaves, a podcast where we think through Scripture, one passage, one topic at a time, until we have shaken all of its leaves. So this week, we're finishing our series on addressing the question of if God is good, and if God is all-powerful, then why does God allow for sin, suffering, brokenness, and evil in the world? And in the last couple of weeks, we talked about two other angles from which the Bible addresses this question, one of them being that God is being patient, that God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but he wishes for all to come to repentance. And so God is actively giving sinners time to repent because when God comes back to set this world straight and to deal with the sin, suffering, and brokenness in the world, that's going to involve judging the people who are responsible, judging sinners. And so God is being slow to anger. God is being patient so that those people have time to repent. Last week, we talked about Genesis chapter 3, and we talked about the actual story of how the world got to be the way that it is. The fact that God's not actually responsible for the sin in the world. God's not the one who broke all of this. God created people. He gave us the gift of creation and paradise. And then he told us, if you obey, you will live. And if you sin, you will die. And then we chose to sin. We are the ones who are responsible for the state of the world because we sinned. And it's not just that Adam sinned in the past, causing the brokenness of the world and giving us sinful natures, but it's also that we ourselves in our own lives continue to sin. And that, the frankly, the majority of suffering that a person experiences in their own life is the result of their own sinful choices and the consequences thereof. That besides that, there are a lot of consequences in their life that are the result of other people's sinful choices and the consequences thereof. That the brokenness of the world is primarily the result of all of the people in the world being sinful and having the cumulative effects of those sins be brokenness. So we're the ones who took out dad's car and then crashed it. We're the ones who broke the world. So it's important to understand we're responsible. But as we finished with last week, it is also the case that had God wanted to, he could have just made it impossible for us to sin. He could have just not put the tree in the garden. He could have done that. And so there is also a very real question that needs to be addressed of if God is good, why? Why does God allow for evil? Why does God allow for all of the brokenness that exists in this world? Well, today is the anticipated answer to that question. Today is the day that we actually address the core of that issue, where we actually get down to the nitty gritty and we ask, why? Why did God let this happen? With the understanding that we are responsible, why did God let it happen? Well, I'm going to start with a bigger question. And that bigger question is, why does God do anything? Why does God perform any action? Because one of the things that you're going to be able to see if you read the entire Bible is that you are going to see that there is a single motivation which you can trace through the entire Bible that gives the reason for basically all of God's actions. The thing above all else that God is motivated by is his own glory. And I'm just going to pull a few verses that talk about this, but there are a lot of them. But Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. So God creates, and one of the main functions of creation is to make God look good. 
at the end of Job, when God is discussing with Job his own glory, he spends like multiple chapters just going through a bunch of the animals that he's created and saying, look at this thing. Look how cool it is. I made that. That God is glorified by his creation. And so God creates for the purpose of his own glory. Another example from the life of Jesus Christ in John 4:34 when Jesus is with the Samaritan woman one of the things he says to his disciples at the beginning of his ministry is that my food is to do the will of him who sent me until I accomplish his work and Jesus is referring to God so what is God's work that Jesus is accomplishing well in John chapter 17 Jesus revisits this idea and in John chapter 17, verse 1, he opens his prayer by saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So initially, Jesus is demonstrating a desire for his own glory and for the glory of God. And in John seventeen four, he says, I glorified you, speaking of the father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. So what is the work? That is Jesus's food to accomplish in John 4, 34, to glorify the father by accomplishing his work. So Jesus wants glory. The father wants glory and they work for the purpose of getting that glory. And another famous example of this is even in Psalm 23, which Psalm 23 is a Psalm that probably a lot of us have memorized. And it says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. And so we see that there is just a common thread throughout the Bible that the reason that God does anything is for the sake of his own glory. And so a question that I'm going to be thinking is like, okay, if everything God does is motivated by his own glory, and if I'm thinking about the specific case of God allowing sin and suffering and brokenness in the world, if I know that everything God does is motivated by his own glory, then from the greater to the lesser, why does God do this specific thing? Because it brings him glory. And so that that's a very odd combination. That's a very odd statement. That we could say that the reason that God allows sin and suffering and brokenness in the world is because it brings him glory. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, goodness gracious, how in the world does sin and, and suffering and brokenness bring God glory? How could that possibly be the case? Well, okay, well, let, let's look into it a little bit. Are there passages that we can look at that would specifically demonstrate ways in which that would be the case? Are there passages we can look at that would confirm our initial consideration that maybe this could be God's motivation? Well, one of the passages that comes to my mind is Exodus chapter 34. And in Exodus 34, Moses is speaking to God and he says to God, Hey God, um, show me your glory. Show me your face. I want to see you. But God says, I will not show you my face for if you see my face, you will die. And this is a discussion about God's glory, that Moses cannot comprehend the fullness of God's glory and still be able to live. But God says, I will pass by you and I will allow you to see my back. I will show you a reduced form of my glory and I will allow you to comprehend a lesser extent of my glory such that you can see a piece of it but still live. 
And then in Exodus 34, it says that God puts Moses in the cleft of a rock and then he passes by him. And in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so what we see when we look at that, like let's just go through that list God is giving a list of the things that make him look as incredible as possible. And in Exodus 34, verse 8, Moses' response to this list is to quickly bow his head towards the earth and worship. So God is giving some of his most glorious characteristics in a small statement. Let's go through those characteristics and let's see how many of those characteristics involve sin. Okay, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. On its face, mercy and grace are demonstrations of how God interacts with sin. Mercy is when you don't get the thing you deserve, when you deserve punishment, but by God's mercifulness, by God's mercifulness, yeah, we'll say that, by God's mercy, you do not receive the punishment you deserve. That's mercy. That's a response to sin. Grace is when, by God's grace, he gives you something you don't deserve despite your sin. Again, on its face, a response to sin. God is slow to anger. Well, God doesn't need to be slow to anger if there's no one provoking him to anger. Again, on its face, response to sin. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Well, love is when you self-sacrificially act in the best interests of another person. Love is when I self-sacrificially act in kindness to give you something. Well, what is the greatest expression of God's love that has ever occurred in history? There's a single event that should be coming to your mind. And that single event is the crucifixion of Jesus where God himself comes onto earth and he lives and then he suffers and he dies. So that he can bear the penalty of our sin. That Jesus, on that cross, God poured out on Jesus all of the suffering of billions of eternities in hell that we earned and deserved. He suffered that so that we wouldn't have to. That is a self-sacrificial love that Jesus committed so that we could have salvation and eternal life and that that could be made available to all people. That is an act of love that we never would have seen if sin didn't exist. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, and even in this passage, the example God gives is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. If transgression and iniquity and sin did not exist, that statement would make no sense. God could say he was loving and I would believe him. God could say he was merciful and I would believe him, but I wouldn't know what mercy means. God could say he's just. And I would believe him, but I wouldn't know what justice was. But the existence of sin allows us to see these characteristics of God and to understand them. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So God is glorified when he is merciful towards sinners 
And God is glorified when he is just to sinners. And again, both of these are extremely important characteristics of God. God's holiness, God's justice, but also God's love and God's mercy. None of those characteristics would be possible to understand if sin and suffering and brokenness didn't exist. Okay, well, we we can kind of reason to the place. We can kind of reason to the place that the reason that sin exists in the world and brokenness exists in the world is because it brings God glory. But I'm going to bring you to the book of Habakkuk. And the book of Habakkuk is a specific book in which God actually explicitly says that that's the reason that he allows for sin and suffering in the world. Why does God allow for sin and suffering in the world? Because it brings him glory, which that's a shocking thought. But we are going to continue because I want to read you Habakkuk where it lays this out in a very helpful way, or at least in a way that I found very helpful when I first studied it. And for some context on the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is a prophet who is prophesying shortly before the nation of Babylon comes to invade Judah, where the things about which Habakkuk prophesies, Habakkuk is going to live through those events. So this is very near approaching the judgments which Habakkuk talks about, and Habakkuk is observing the state of Israel, the fact that Israel is wicked, the fact that Israel is sinful, the fact that there is no justice in Israel, that there is suffering as the result of that injustice. And Habakkuk comes to God and Habakkuk asks God questions. Habakkuk is a book of the Bible where Habakkuk asks God the question of the problem of evil. Like this is a book that directly addresses it because that's the question that Habakkuk is asking. And it says in chapter one, verse one, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, the the prophet, Habakkuk the prophet saw, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. And in this case, Habakkuk's not actually aware of the judgment that's coming towards Israel, at least not as he considers this question. He's simply looking at the state of Israel, the broken, sinful, unjust state of Israel. And he says, God, if you are good, why are you allowing this in your people? And so that's a state that we can be in, that we can look at the United States, for example. We can look at whatever culture we're in. We can look at the world, period. And we can say, God, why do you allow all of this suffering and brokenness and sin if you are good? And in fact, that is exactly the question of evil. That is the question that we started this series to address. And that is the question that we are completely resolving tonight. Or at least it's night for me. I don't know what time it is for you. But this is the question that Habakkuk is answering. Why are you allowing this injustice and brokenness? And God responds. He says, look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. 
Their horsemen come galloping, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings, and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. And when you're reading that, that description, God is looking at the Chaldeans and he says this mighty people, this wicked people whose justice and authority originate from themselves, these people who are their own God, these violent people, I'm sending them to Israel. And if, if you're following along with that, that is horrifying. That is terrifying. Because Habakkuk is going to God and he's saying, God, why are you allowing injustice and sin and suffering among your people, Israel? And Habakkuk is thinking, please fix this. Please set this straight. Come back. Put righteousness in the place of the judges and remove the injustice, which is polluting our people. God, please, why are you looking on injustice? And then God says to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, just so you know, look at the Chaldeans. Look at that unrighteous, wicked, guilty, horrifying people. I am sending them to Israel to destroy it. And Habakkuk, who was originally thinking, God, please set this place straight. Like, give us, give us good people in the place of the judges. He's thinking that God's going to come back and give Israel religious revival. And then God says, actually, no, I'm tearing Israel down. And if you read the account of what Babylon does to Israel in 2 Kings... It's brutal. The people of Israel are going to be sieged. They're going to have their city burned. They're going to be carried off into captivity. A lot of them are going to die. Habakkuk is going to live to see all of this. And that's terrifying. And God says this brutal suffering. Not only is it being allowed, I'm sending it. Like, if you want to look at a situation where there is sin and injustice going on and that God's allowing it, if you want to look at a situation where outright suffering and death is happening and God is allowing it, and let's just take a step further, if you want to look at a situation where outright sin and suffering and death is taking place and God himself sent it, that is the situation. There is no situation, in a sense, where you could say it is harder for God to, like, quote, defend himself than the one that God puts forward in Habakkuk. And Habakkuk's response in verse 12, he's shocked. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. And he's expressing faith in God's ability to provide for Israel despite the coming judgment. So good for him. But he says, we will not die for you, O Lord, have appointed them to judge and you, O rock, have established them to correct. But then you get to the resumption of Habakkuk's questioning because in verse 13, he says, your eyes are too pure to approach evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? And Habakkuk looks at this situation and he says, God, aren't you good? Aren't you powerful? Why are you sending them to do this? And Habakkuk accepts God's previous answer. Again, credit to Habakkuk. 
Habakkuk accepts God's previous answer, but he's still left with an even greater question, not of God, why are you allowing evil, but of God, why are you sending evil and suffering? Why are you allowing a nation less righteous than Israel to be the means by which you punish Israel? How could this be the case? And God answers him. In chapter 2, in verse 2, it says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. And God says, This vision that I am sending to you, it is sure I am doing it. But, he says some things about the Chaldeans, things that are interesting to consider and good to, and good to think about. In verse 6, God demonstrates the fact that even though the Chaldeans are being used as a vehicle for judgment now, they themselves will be judged for the sin which God allows them to commit for the purpose of um, disciplining Israel. So the Chaldeans will face judgment. And he says in verse 6, will not these, referring to the people whom uh, the Chaldeans have Uh, conquered and made war against. He says, will not these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him and say, woe to him who increases what is not his for how long. And he makes himself rich with loans. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken Indeed, then you will become plunder for them because you have looted many nations and the remainder of the peoples will loot you because of human bloodshed and the violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. So God looks at the Chaldeans and he says, they will be judged for the things which I am allowing them to do. They will be judged. And it's the situation where God is still affirming the fact that they are responsible for their actions. God is using their sin to accomplish good. And yet there's still that remaining question of, again, just like we said in Genesis 3, God could have just not put the tree there. So God is judging the Chaldeans for their sin. God is holding them responsible, which is consistent with what we've talked about previously. But there's still that question of, um, God, you're sending them. You're sending them. You are sending suffering and you're actually taking direct credit for sending suffering. How is that possible? And this in verses um, 12 through 14, God explains. He says in verses in verse 12, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. So God looks at the sinner. God looks at suffering. God looks at the effects of sin, not only for the person who commits sin, but especially for the people who uh, benefit from that sin, one, and also the people who suffered as a result of that sin. When you're founding a city on bloodshed and violence, there were people who had to be slaughtered for that to happen. So there are people who suffered unjustly by your sin, and there are people who benefit from your sin. Okay, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary from nothing? God says, is it not from me that you sin and that you suffer for it? 
Is it not from me that there is justice as a result of your sin? Is it not from me that your sin is allowed to happen, but that then it is rightly dealt with? Why? Verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God says, why am I allowing suffering and evil? Why am I sending suffering and evil? Why do I allow sinners to sin? Why do I then judge that sin? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God explicitly says that the reason he allows sin and suffering in the world is because it brings him glory. God's justice brings him glory. God's mercy brings him glory. The fact that sin is a foil that we can place next to God, where we can't even understand God's holiness without understanding sin, but the presence of sin allows us to understand God's character in a way that we would never have been able to without it. And that's a weird thing to hear. It's like, okay, how does God, how does God, how does, how does God brought glory from sin? And we, we addressed this a little bit earlier and, Exodus 34, but there's a few other passages that we can consider. One that comes to mind is Isaiah 48, 8 through 11, where God is speaking to an apostate Israel, where God is looking at Israel and all of their sin, and he says to them, you have never heard, you have never known, for from of old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously. So in other words, God knew ahead of time that Israel was going to be a faithless nation before he ever instituted them, before he chose them, before he established them. God knew that they were going to be treacherous. So this is very similar to Genesis chapter 3 of if God made mankind and God knew that the mankind was going to sin, why did he go through with it? Very similar. God's looking at the founding of Israel and he's saying, I knew you were going to be treacherous beforehand. And yet I made you anyway. Verse 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it to you that I may not cut you off. God, for the sake of his glory, is merciful. Verse 10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And in that, when he's talking about refining Israel through suffering, it's not just that God is merciful in response to sin and that that demonstrates his glory. It's also this incredible thing that God uses suffering. God uses suffering to actually produce good. And that's incredible in its own right. And we're actually going to explore this a bit more. But again, sin allows us to see aspects of God's character that we wouldn't have been able to see without it. We talked about this earlier, but we talked about how the greatest expression of God's love is the cross of Christ. And Philippians 2 actually discusses this. In Philippians 2, 8 through 11, it says of Jesus that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So again, notice that correlation. Action and the result of that action is glory. So Jesus goes to the cross so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That honestly, probably the single action in history that brings God more glory than any other action, period, is the cross of Christ, is the act of redemption where God saves sinners. That we as sinners, despite the fact that we deserve judgment, God, at extraordinary cost to himself, God saves sinners. If there were no sinners, the cross never would have happened. And you can already see the single action by which God receives more glory than any other action is entirely enabled by the sake, uh, sorry, is entirely enabled by the presence of sin. If sin and suffering did not exist, the cross never would have happened. And the single action that brings God more glory than anything else never would have happened. And think about this. If I were perfect, if I had never sinned, if I was simply in paradise with God and I was worshiping God as a perfect being, I can worship absolutely. And I can hear God say that he's just. And I can believe that because I know that God's honest. I can do that. But I can never understand what justice is. I've never had to see a situation where God needed to be just. I've never seen a situation where God judged a sinner. God can say he's merciful and I can believe him because God's honest. But I have absolutely no idea what mercy even is. I don't know what mercy is. I've never experienced mercy. I've never seen mercy given to someone else. So I can hear God say that, but also I don't know what it means and there's no way for him to substantiate it. But if I'm a sinner and if as a result of my sin, I see God's justice because I know that because God is just, what's waiting for me is an eternity in hell. If I see as a sinner that God is merciful because God has wiped my slate clean because God at extraordinary cost to himself bought my freedom. When I'm in heaven, I'm going to be in heaven as a redeemed sinner. I am a sinner who deserved to burn and I'm going to be in heaven with the extraordinary pleasure of thanking God for my life. And angels, like I think about this with angels, angels sinned and God created hell. God created hell for the devil and his angels where angels sinned and God created hell and the angels learned about God's justice. And then people sinned. Satan convinced us to drink the same poison he drank. And then instead of just sending all of us to hell, because all the angels are thinking, wait, we've seen how this plays out. Um, they're going to hell. They're going to suffer. They're going to experience God's justice because they sinned. All the angels know how this play goes because they watched it. And then God says, actually, no, I'm going to do something that you won't believe. I'm going to send my own son and I am going to ruthlessly, mercilessly, wrathfully execute my own son. God, very God, I am going to execute him so that they can have life. And the angels, they're just, their minds are blown. 
They're flabbergasted. Elsewhere, it says that we have seen things into which the angels long to look. The angels cannot understand the fact that God, very God, would actually sacrifice himself for our life. And when I am in heaven, I'm going to look at an angel. And that angel is going to look at me. And this angel who has never sinned, who has never deserved punishment, is going to look at me, who the only thing I've ever deserved is punishment, and he's going to be like, wow, God is extraordinarily gracious and merciful, because goodness gracious, who could love you? And I'm going to look at the angel as someone who is a sinner, who is worthless, who deserved hellfire and suffering, and yet at the extraordinary cost to God, I have been given life and I'm going to look at the angel and I'm going to say, goodness gracious, I know who could possibly love me and who could possibly love me like that. And then me and the angel are going to look right over at God and we're going to be like, that's who. And then we are going to spend forever glorifying God for his mercy and his love that he demonstrated to us. And the thing is, it says that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. God highly exalts Jesus. And actually God is going to be glorified through everyone. For me as a Christian, God shows his glory through me by being extraordinarily kind to me, that God is going to show off his grace and his kindness and his love by lavishing good on me. But if you're not a Christian, if you hard-heartedly reject the gift that God has given you, the way that God is glorified in you is through his justice, through the suffering that is due to sinners, suffering that you do not have to bear, suffering that God does not want you to bear, suffering that should you choose to bear it, you will bear, and you will bear it forever. But God is glorified by all people And God is able to be glorified in that way because of sin. So that's one thing that we see characteristics of God that we never would have seen without sin. But we've seen that through the cross of Christ. But I want to show you another way in which that's demonstrated. We see the glory of God through the fact that God works out good from sin and from suffering. God takes bad things, sin and suffering, and he turns them into good things, which is just all kinds of impressive. But let's look at James chapter 1, because in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So that shows us two things. Here's the first thing that shows us. That shows us that in the life of a Christian, in the life of one of God's children, God takes suffering and he turns it into growth. That I become stronger because of suffering. That God is so incredible that he takes evil, brokenness, and he takes the consequences of sin in the world and he uses them to make me stronger. That he uses them to grow me. Here's the second thing we see from James 2 through 1, 2 through 3. If you are a Christian, then suffering is actually a test of your salvation. Because for us, we're going to die. We're going to stand before Jesus. And when we stand before Jesus, it is too late 
to accept him as a savior. We have been given this life as the opportunity to accept the gospel. And so one of the things that's really important is you need to test your faith. If when I stand before Jesus, it is too late for me to actually accept the gift he gives, then I need to be able to make sure that I have accepted the gift he gives. I need to be able to make sure that I'm actually a Christian because there are people who think they are Christians and they are not. And you can check Matthew 7 for that. So I need to be able to make sure I'm a Christian ahead of time. And so James 1, 2 through 3, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith might produce steadfastness. No, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. When a Christian suffers, that Christian grows. If you are a Christian, then suffering produces steadfastness. Where one of the ways that God gives us to evaluate our faith is suffering. And First Peter chapter 1 actually makes the same argument. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested in fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Where Peter says, when you encounter trials, that is an opportunity for you to evaluate your own salvation. Because you see, if I'm a Christian, when I suffer, my faith gets stronger. If you are someone and you suffer and your faith gets weaker, that is actually a demonstration that you're not a Christian. And when you have people that they suffer and then they leave the church, they abandon God, they leave the faith. That was a demonstration that as first John says, that they went out from us because they were never of us, that you were never a Christian to begin with. It's not that you lost your salvation. It's that your genuineness of your salvation was proven to be false. And so God uses suffering in the life of a Christian to produce strength and to produce an assurance of salvation. Those are very, very good things. Those are things that I am very appreciative of, and God uses suffering to accomplish them. So God, in his glorious power, is able to use suffering and bad things to produce good outcomes, which is crazy. A similar thing happens in Genesis on a larger scale, where we know the story of Joseph, where Joseph's brothers sell Joseph into slavery. Joseph goes into slavery And then God takes Joseph out of slavery and into prison. So it gets worse. (laughs) But God puts Joseph out of slavery into prison and then out of prison into leadership over the nation of Egypt, where a famine comes upon the land that would have wiped out the ancient Near East. And God uses Joseph to save Egypt, the surrounding nations, and ding, 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 Joseph's brothers from that famine. And when Joseph's brothers and Joseph are eventually reunited, Joseph says this to them in Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 through 20. He says, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so even on a large scale, God is able to use sin, sinful actions. God is able to use sin and suffering, which this is very similar to the Habakkuk situation as well, by the way. Very good parallel. 
God is able to use egregious sin to produce extraordinary good. That is another way that God uses sin to bring himself glory. Okay, so I could go on. There are more things I could say. There are more passages I could bring to bear about God, uh, about God receiving glory because of sin. But I'm going to stop there. And I want to talk about why it is that we don't want to accept this answer. Because when it comes right down to it, this is actually not that complicated of an answer. This is, uh, it's not pleasant. I'll admit that. It's not a pleasant answer. It's not an answer that we naturally like. But it's also not that hard to reason to. Like I said, if you have read your Bible, then you know that God is motivated by his own glory. And so it is not difficult to understand that sin that the reason that God allows sin must then be because it brings him glory. That's not hard. It's not hard to look at all these passages where, for example, like Habakkuk, where God says, I allow suffering and sin because it brings me glory. It is not hard to look at passages like James 1, Genesis 50, and others, where God demonstrates ways in which he has brought glory by his uh, interactions with sin. We can rather clearly see once we actually open our eyes to it that this is in fact why God allows evil. We can do that. But the reason that we don't like it is this. Because it means that God chose to allow us to suffer and to suffer greatly for the sake of his own glory. That's a hard pill to swallow. Here's why that's a hard pill to swallow. Because we don't like the fact that we are a means to an end. Here's the reality. God is the creator and God has created us for a purpose. And that purpose is not our subjective well-being. You see, as people, we like to think that we are the center of the universe. Excuse me. We like to think that we are the center of the universe. As people, we like to think that the ultimate goal of reality is our own subjective well-being and happiness. We look at our life and we suffer and we hurt and we think to ourselves, man, God must not be good because he's not making my life good. Because naturally the measure of how good or not good God is, is how much I'm enjoying myself, of course. And we think that we are the end. We think that we are the ultimate goal of reality. We think that the ultimate good in existence is for our own subjective happiness. That is not the case. We were made for a purpose in the same way that I don't give a rip what my car thinks about where I drive it in the same way that I don't give a rip if my car doesn't like the fact that I'm driving it too far or if my car doesn't like the fact that I'm not driving it far enough, the same way that I do not care what my car thinks about how I use it. My car is a tool. My car is a means to the greater purpose of my goals in the same way. We are created beings. God created us for his own purposes and God has the right to use us for what he wants to use us for. Because you see, the purposes of our existence is for us to accomplish whatever matters to God. God wants to be glorified and so God made us. That's our purpose. That's our goal. As a Christian, I, uh, God has chosen to glorify himself through me by being extraordinarily kind to me, that I'm going to die, and when I die, I'm going to go to heaven, despite the fact that I do not deserve it. 
I have absolutely no business doing anything other than burning. I am a sinner. I am a wretch. Romans 3 specifically says that I am worthless. I have no business in heaven. I have no business being alive. I have no business enjoying any good that God gives to me. I have no business doing anything other than suffering. And that is the truth for every single sinner. We have no business doing anything other than receiving justice. And the way that God demonstrates his extraordinary glory to me and through me is by lavishing good on me anyway and doing so at extraordinary cost to himself. That all of creation is going to look at me and be absolutely astonished that God was showing mercy even to me. As a Christian, that is how God has chosen to demonstrate his glory through me. And I'm pretty happy about that. I get to be pretty glad about that. That, uh, That's pretty awesome. (laughs) But even then... My own subjective happiness, my own subjective well-being, which I am going to spend an eternity receiving, is not an end in itself. It is not that there is some inherent value to my happiness. There isn't. The value of my happiness is simply the fact that it is a demonstration of God's extraordinary love and mercy and grace. God is glorified by my happiness because I don't deserve it. And I'm going to spend a long time thanking God for it. And not just me, but the angels who look in and whatever other beings exist that I'm not aware of that are going to look in and see it. I'm going to thank God. And my worship is going to be fueled by the fact that I know where I should have been. I know where I am. I know I don't deserve it. I know where I'm not. And I know that I do deserve that. That's going to fuel my worship in a way that I never would have been able to if I had never needed to be saved. But God is my savior and God is kind to me and that is worshipful. On the flip side, there are people who will harden their hearts, who will ongoingly reject the things that God has said, who will reject the gift that God offers them, who will reject the salvation that God at extraordinary cost to himself has extended to them. There are people who will reject that and they will burn and they will spend eternity glorifying God one by worshiping him anyway. You see Philippians two, like we read every knee will bow In heaven, on earth, under the earth. Every single person in hell will worship God anyway. Their entire existence is going to be them singing praises to God. Their entire existence is going to be them worshiping God despite the fact that they are suffering. They will worship God. And the justice of God brings him glory. God is glorified by his justice. God is glorified by his holiness. So every single soul in hell brings God glory by virtue of the fact that God is just and his justice is being demonstrated through them. Here's what makes that so hard to swallow. That's brutal. People will hear that and they will be astonished by the idea that God could be so willing to allow people to suffer For the sake of his own glory. But even Proverbs says that all things are made for their time, even the wicked man for the day of destruction. That's hard. But, you see, 
our difficulty with this is that we like to be God. We think that we are the end. You see, in reality, God is the end. God is the ultimate goal of all creation. The world revolves around God, but we want the world to revolve around us. And in fact, Genesis chapter three, that is part of what the serpent said to the woman. It says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the, or when you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. That one of the things that Satan convinced Adam and Eve to sin for was that they might be like God, that they might be God themselves that the universe might revolve around them. And in fact, that is exactly the temptation that Satan himself fell to. In Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, when God is speaking of Satan, he says, Oh, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, listen here, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the height of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan's sin was that he wanted to be God. And then Satan sold that same sin to us. And now, as people, we want to be the center of the universe, and we don't want to accept a reality where we are an end, or sorry, where we are a means to God's ends. And so, instead of making ourselves out to be a means to the end of God's glory, we instead choose to live this life as our own God. We live this life for our own pleasure, we live this life for our own ends, and we refuse to accept the fact that we have been made and we exist to serve the purposes of God. And we would rather have this life to be our own God than be in heaven with the actual God. And that is why people refuse the gospel because they don't want to worship God. They don't want to be a means to God's end. And for that, God gives you that choice. God gives you that choice. I would not advise that you make that choice. God gives you that choice. And should you choose it, God will let you choose it but it will result in judgment. You will either glorify God by meeting God as your savior, or you will glorify God by meeting God as your judge. I am begging you, meet God as your savior, like I have. But with that, that is the reason that God allows evil in the world. We talked for the first week, 2 Peter 3. God is allowing evil because when he comes back to set evil straight, he will judge sinners. God is not eager to judge sinners. He is giving you time to repent. He wants you to repent. Why is there suffering in the world? Because we sin. God gave us a good world. God gave us a choice. God said, if you are obedient, you will live. If you sin, you will die. We sinned. And as a result, we die. We broke this. It's our fault. Finally, why does God allow sin in the world? Because sin brings God glory. There are so many characteristics of God that we would never be able to even conceive of if it weren't for the existence of sin. That so much of God's glory is the direct result of how he responds to sin. 
And God is not responsible for sin. God is not a sinner. James 1 says that he is not tempted by sin, nor does he tempt anyone. And yet God allowed it. And the reason he allowed it is because it does bring him glory. And whether or not we like that answer, it is still the answer. Because the purpose of life is not our happiness. And if our suffering brings glory to God, it is good that we suffer. We were made as a means to an end. I am not God. God is God. And I am made to serve. Again, glorious thing. I'm stoked about that because God's going to be glorified through me by being really nice to me. And I, I, I cannot even begin to explain how, how incredibly excited I am to experience that, man. It, it's, it blows my mind that that's available. But again, means to an end. I am not the goal of creation. God is the goal of creation. And we need to accept that. So, I'm, I'm going to pray it out. Oh, I really hope this is helpful. I, I really do. I know that this can be hard to hear. I know that this goes against some of the most foundational things that exist in our own souls. I know this goes against our very nature. I know that this is not something we want to hear. I know this is not something we like. And I know that it is hard to understand. Well, it's not hard to understand, but it's hard to accept. I really, I, I really hope it helps. But let, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for the fact that you are the center of creation and that you did not obscure that from us. Lord, you are the center of creation, and because you are the center of creation, you are allowing us to experience good. You are the center of creation, and because you are the center of creation, you are lavishing mercy and grace upon sinners who deserve judgment. Lord, you saved me, and you have saved many like me who do not deserve it, who have no business accepting your mercy, and yet you gave it to us anyway. Lord, I pray that if there are non-Christians who hear this, I pray that they would not harden their hearts from the things that are being heard, from the things that are being said, but that this would be an opportunity for them to accept the gift that you have offered them. Lord, for Christians, I pray that this would be an opportunity for them to understand their position towards you, that they would come to a deeper understanding of your goodness and your glory and the fact that we are meant to serve, that we would embrace our position as servants and Christians and that we would love you and love you deeply, everything about you, that Lord, we would worship you for the good you have done to us and that we would res- that we would respond by spreading that word by attempting to spread your mercy to all of the people in this world who have yet to be saved lord i pray that this would be helpful and i pray these things in the name of our king jesus christ amen all right well hey if you've got uh, questions, comments, raging accusations, you can email me at johnhorning at gmail.com. I have a website called Shaking Scriptures Leaves. The URL for that is, John, is uh, johnhorning.org. Uh, if you want to see some of the other episodes I've put forward, if you want to see blog posts, hey, let me know what you think of the things that we've talked about. Let me know if there are other issues that you'd like me to address in the future. I'd love to hear from you. But with that, thank you very much for listening. I hope this was helpful.